Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, last week, Hurricane Laura, which reached Category 4 status, came ashore just on the Texas-Louisiana border. I think uh, the final forensics aren't in, but with wind speeds in excess of 150 uh, miles an hour, a projected storm surge up to 19 feet, which I don't think fully materialized, but again, the data is not in. And uh, we're going to talk about these storms and about the risks to the Texas coast, and we've got an amazing guest to go through that with us today, Jim Blackburn from the Rice University Speed Center, one of the expert groups that is evaluating coastal risks in Galveston Bay. Really great guy. It's always a treat to speak with uh, Jim, and of course, Jim came up uh, came across our radar with an opinion piece in the New York Times. He did. That's you know, that's that's impressive. And and what what he was talking about was how this storm missed the what would have been an incredibly soft spot and could have created a major, major environmental disaster. And uh, we kind of lost that in this storm. It landed in kind of this uh, relatively undeveloped zone. I yeah. mean, you know, obviously there are a lot of people impacted. But uh, anyway, it's a, it's a fascinating storm to kind of look at and uh, was obviously front of mind for all of us on the American shoreline. So we look forward to this conversation. But before we get into it, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants offers high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, and the skilled and respectful crews to get your project built. Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring the dune and wetland ecology of your home or barrier island. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at dunesciencegroup.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, Jim, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast, and thanks for joining us and being back on the show. I think this is your second or third appearance on the show. Uh, Jim, I read with great interest your article in the New York Times. It came out August 28th, and for folks out there who have a chance, Google it up. It's in the New York Times editorial section. The article is entitled, Texas is Running Out of Near Misses, uh, a really good evaluation of uh, the potential devastation that could occur in the Houston Galveston area. Jim, tell us about your article and what motivated you to write that for the New York Times. 
Well, the article came about, I was interviewed by John Schwartz uh, for an article in the New York Times, and then based upon the uh, the comments and uh, uh, the, the quotations in the article, the op-ed section got hold of me and asked me if I would write up some of the thoughts that I had. And we were talking, and I mentioned about the Nuclear Regulatory Commission having a a higher standard than the Corps of Engineers. And they said, well, that's intriguing. How about writing that up? So they kind of helped me along with an idea or two, but um, it was uh, very quick, very fast. And luckily it turned out, uh, I think, pretty well. Well, I think it did, Jim. Now, I, I got to ask, uh, this connection, I mean, we've we've had you on before. We've talked about the mid-bay option and some of the cool stuff you've been cooking up over at the Speed Center. And also, we've talked about the we've talked with the core, with the Galveston district about this project. This is an incredible engineering feat, ladies and gentlemen. We're talking about Hoover Dam levels, I would say, of engineering prowess required to defend the uh, the Houston Ship Channel and the Houston Bay. I believe is the name of that bay, right, Peter? No, Galveston Bay. The mm-hmm. Galveston Bay. Thank you, Jim. So, but. The connection with the environment, the, the environmental threat in association with all of these chemical plants. Jim, would you talk to our audience about this frame of, uh, you know, you compared the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and, and, and their regulations and how just much more sc- scrutiny is given to the sensitive, the environmental sensitivity of these heavy industry plants? Well, I think that. You know, for one thing, I think on the one hand, everyone knows how horrible a nuclear plant would be and what a, how bad a nuclear incident would be. But I'm not sure we really appreciate how vulnerable our industrial uh, complexes are. Uh, I think, frankly, many people in the United States don't understand quite how these industrial complexes work. That where we have deep channels along particularly the Gulf Coast, um, Lake Charles, Houston, Freeport. Beaumont, Port Arthur, Orange, Texas, uh, Lake Charles, uh, which really, really also ducked a uh, bullet on. Um, it had a lot of damage, but they did not get the surge. Uh, New Orleans, Baton Rouge, Mobile, all of these complexes are along dredged channels for the most part and are on uh, relatively low-lying countryside and are extremely vulnerable to high surge. And there, the many plants are together. There are agglomerations, I think is the official term. And so you have a refinery that spawns chemical plants. They're all connected by pipelines. And there's just storage tanks after storage tanks after storage tanks. And you, with a big uh, tragedy like a huge surge coming in, you will not just see one plant damaged. You could easily see the damage multiplied across many, many plants from the same and or from the single event and you know the tanks are not designed for uh, being surrounded by water and they're certainly not designed for a container uh, box uh, being carried on the waves and thrust into the side of them right so when you talked about it in the and for our listeners around the country the galveston and houston area is a major refining complex chemical industrial complexes as well as you said seven major oil refineries uh, in the Galveston Bay area adjacent to very deep water channels that can carry storm surges well inland and as you said located on very low elevation property in your article 
Uh, you said that a significant storm surge that might reach 19 feet could release 90 million, is it 90 million gallons of chemicals into the bay, causing uh, what you estimate to be one of the greatest environmental disasters that could ever uh, hit the United States. Is uh, can you Tell us about that risk and, and, and why is that risk uh, still unaddressed at this point? Well, I think that the uh, the first thing is that with these storms, uh, I think we don't really appreciate surge because we don't see surge nearly as often as we see big flooding rainfall. But the surge that comes with these storms, are, one, it's not with every storm, but with the, the right storm, with the right wind field and kind of coming over the right amount of water. Uh, and particularly along the Texas coast where we have um, a large continental shelf, you can easily get a surge um, in excess of 20 feet. Now, the surge that we were talking about in the article is one of 24 feet. And we've done uh, some detailed studies at the uh, Severe Storm Center, the Speed Center at Rice University. And uh, Dr. Paget has gone through and has analyzed really almost every plant along the ship channel to see the elevations of the storage tanks and uh, and then to judge uh, kind of really how they were constructed and whether they could survive being inundated by that amount of water. And her estimate is that a significant number of those tanks would fail, mainly because they would pop off of their foundations uh, because they're not designed to be surrounded by um, uh, by water. And when they popped, of course, they would release whatever their contents are. And we wouldn't know if that would be crude oil or hazardous substance, but it will be one or the other. And her estimate was about 90 million gallons with a 24-foot surge. Uh, with a 26-28 foot surge, it would be almost double that or triple that, uh, which would put it up in the um, deep water horizon category. Uh, for comparison, uh, the Vexon Valdez released 10 million gallons of oil. So we're talking about huge amounts of oil and hazardous substances potentially being released, and it would destroy Galveston Bay for decades, not to mention uh, the severe economic consequences. And of course, the public, I mean, a lot of people live on Galveston Bay. I think easily 200,000 people could be affected here. So we're talking about chemical and oil and gas vulnerability as well as neighborhood vulnerability. Well, Jim, See, you and Peter, the two resident Texans here, I'm, I need to, you know, you guys are comfortable with the, with, I imagine that the oil and gas industry is required to have some sort of plan in place. I mean, have, they're located right on the water. Uh, things happen. I mean, what, this, your the, your op-ed drew this to my attention, I have to say, for the first time. I mean, I knew always knew that there was... They talk about the energy coast and how important it is to protect Houston for to protect America's energy. But this is a whole different angle for me. The the risk of not protecting it and potentially what what would happen? I mean, is there is the industry prepared for a cleanup? I mean, what what is what what currently is in place to protect us? Well, unfortunately, not a lot. Uh, most of these industries um, have uh, uh, berms around the storage tanks, and those berms uh, are really designed to keep spilled oil from going into the water rather right. than from to keep water out. Uh, when the plants were constructed, there were no floodplain regulations for the most part. 
Uh, today, they would be required to be for, protected to a certain floodplain level, but it's not retroactive. So many of these plants were built before we really even had good information about floodplains. I mean, many of our refineries go back to the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and the chemical plants really came after the uh, during and after World War II. So it's an old complex. Uh, the chemical plants change a lot, but the refinery is pretty much the same as they've always been. Hmm. Uh, we think on the Houston Ship Channel, uh, we're protected. I mean, they've got enough elevation. They've got docks. They've got berms. We think they're pretty well protected to about a 15-foot surge. And we've really never seen a direct hit by a 15-foot surge. Um, Ike, which was not a direct hit on, on Houston, although it caused $24 billion worth of damage, uh, Ike really missed us to the east, and the big surge went into the marshes of Jefferson and Chambers County. Again, we were very fortunate and dodged another one there. But um, had Ike come in down the coast, it would have generated a surge bigger than 15 feet. As it was, the industry only had 13 feet during Ike, and we've really never had another comparable storm. Um, I, think the, I think the 1900 storm that destroyed Galveston would have caused a tremendous problem up the ship channel, but uh, the ship channel wasn't there when hmm. that storm came. Right. Well, at the present time, uh, Congress and our good friends at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Galveston District are well along in the planning of a project that we all refer to uh, down here in Texas as the Coastal Spine. It has also been called the Ike Dyke, but this is a federal project designed to address potential storm surge risks into Galveston Bay. Uh, we have had Kelly Burks Copes on the podcast. Kelly, and she shout is, out. She is the uh, project manager for the Corps of Engineers on that project. Uh, and in your article, I think you call into question the adequacy of the strategy that is being undertaken. Uh, can you tell our audience a little bit about the Coastal Spine Project and where you think it doesn't quite reach the level of protection for human health and the environment that it should. Well, first of all, let me say I have a lot of respect both for the Corps and for personnel, for Kelly, for Sharon, for the others that are working on the uh, project down at the Galveston District. Uh, yes, the Corps is operating under a set of rules and regulations that go back to the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And they were rules that were designed to try to keep us from wasting federal money. And so... Those, those uh, rules, those processes are focused on a kind of a project storm, a, a, you might say a reasonable storm, and by no means is it focused on anything associated with climate change, uh, uh, looking into the uh, uh, 2030, 2040, 2050 time period. Uh, when we were anticipating the storms to be much bigger. So bottom line is they have solved for a large Category 2 storm. Uh, they're building a, uh, a coastal barrier uh, dune system to about 14 feet of elevation and a uh, barrier across uh, Bolivar Roads, uh, which is very difficult and a very impressive piece of engineering, to about 17 uh, or so feet. Um, but the storms that we're concerned about at Speed Center or the Cat 4s and 5s, ones that would really demolish the Houston Ship Channel. And those are not the storms that the coastal spiner is, is designed for. So we have developed the Galveston Bay Park Plan as a complementary uh, proposal to go along with the coastal spine 
and provide in-bay protection that can really give us the level of protection that, frankly, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is uh, evaluating all of their plans to see if they have. Well, that is a good thing. And for the audience out there, Jim, let's take a quick moment. I know we've mentioned the Speed Center and uh, let me just give the folks out there the title, and I'd ask that you, uh, you know, explain it just a bit. Rice University created the Speed Center. You are the co-director, and it stands for the Severe Storm Prediction, Education, and Evaluation for Disaster Center. Uh, so Speed Center with two S's. So if you're Googling it up, you would S-S-P-E-E-D Center at Rice University uh, Jim, why was the Speed Center founded, and what is the principal purpose of that uh, academic institution that you uh, help run there at Rice University? Well, it, you know, we call it uh, the Speed Center or the Severe Storm Center at Rice, and it was formed by Dr. Phil Bedient, who is a hydrologist and excellent computer modeler, uh, because of all of the different problems Houston had had in the in, in 2001, we had Tropical Storm Allison, which dumps about 24 inches of rain in 24 hours and really was set off massive flooding. And Phil had been doing computer modeling for many years. So he, he established the Speed Center and then recruited me to come join him as co-director. And uh, Hurricane Ike hit about the time he recruited me. And that was in 2008. And so we went to the Houston Endowment, which is a... Uh, philanthropic foundation that was formed by um, the estate of Jesse Jones, uh, one of the really great uh, early thinkers and planners uh, of Houston. And uh, the endowment funded us for several years to study lessons learned from Hurricane Ike. And among other things, we have done an association with the University of Texas. Uh, we've used their supercomputer and Dr. Clint Dawson from UT to simulate all sorts of storms and their effects on the Houston ship channel, particularly hmm. because all of us are most concerned about what can happen. You know, people, people can evacuate. If people will take warnings into consideration, they can move. Loss of homes will be horrific. Loss of commercial uh, property will be important, but industry and those, those uh, dangerous chemicals, are almost impossible to evacuate. You may be able to pump out some tanks, be able to, to do a few things, but for the most part, that infrastructure is in place, and if it's not protected, it's going to yield and it's going to spill. And that is where, I mean, I've spent my whole life fighting to protect Galveston Bay, and I think this is the single greatest vulnerability that exists. And I, I do think if a storm hit... Uh, Galveston Bay, like Laura would have, if it would have hit down the coast about 50 miles south of Galveston, I think we would have been the worst environmental disaster in United States history. Wow. So is it fair to say, Jim, that you and the other folks at the uh, Speed Center at Rice University, when you look at the Corps of Engineers Coastal Spine Project, uh, developed within the constraints that they are, uh, that are imposed upon them, do you sleep easy at night looking at that project, knowing that uh, this risk is out there? Or are you guys pretty damn nervous about what could still happen with the federal $20 billion coastal spine project? No, I mean, we're incredibly nervous about it. Uh, I mean, this is the stuff that keeps us up at night because, like I say, it, it's not so much the cat two storm that I'm worried about. 
Uh, it's the Cat 4s and Cat 5s. It's the Irmas. It's the Marias. It's the, the Lauras that spring up. Uh, if you know, it, it is it, it's just mind blowing to watch how fast these storms are developing. Har- Harvey, which hit as a um, at least was a Cat Four right before landfall down in the Rockport area on the Texas coast, and dumped 48 inches of rain over about a four day period in the Houston region. Harvey was a tropical storm that bloomed into a Cat Four in the Bay of Campeche almost overnight. Laura did the same thing. I mean, to watch Laura develop, to watch Harvey develop like they did, is to watch the effect of climate change, the hotter water in the Gulf of Mexico, taking a low-pressure system and blowing it into a major hurricane. And, you know, there was, you know, as someone who studied these storms, watching it happen is just almost one of the scariest things I've ever seen. And, you know, it is... It is a problem that the methodologies of the Corps restrict them. But it is also something that we have to acknowledge, and we've got to figure out how to work with it. And so the Speed Center has come up with an in-base solution that is in addition to the coastal spine. Uh, we're ha- we're having to seek innovative financing methods. We're going to have to build it by permit rather than as part of the core project. Hmm. Uh, all of that is okay. We think it's all doable. But what we have not been able to kind of generate is really public concern about the big ones. Uh, It's interesting. Uh, It seems like uh, our leadership, it seems like our industry is willing to say, well, a little bit is just fine. Uh, I don't accept that. I think if we're going to survive climate change, if we're going to thrive into the 21st century, We've got to figure out what the 21st century is going to be throwing at us and be planning for that rather than just trying to do a little bit of something. I I just don't like that attitude. That is very well said, Jim. Now, before we I want to we want to talk a lot about the dynamic of the uh, Army Corps of Engineers and how they're you know what their policies are and planning for the 21st century, Jim, as you put it. But before we get into that, can we talk a little bit about this park plan, this mid-bay option that you guys have cooked up? Talk our audience through what it looks like, what it does. I mean, it seems really, I I, kind of think it's cool. Peter and I were talking before the show. It's kind of a cool project. You can see it on the internet if you're listening to the show, speedcenter.rice.edu. It's called the Galveston Bay Park Plan. You can look at the pictures while we're talking about it. But go ahead, yeah, Jim, tell us, introduce us to that strategy. Well, the strategy, I mean, uh, uh, the Speed Center uh, struggled, as did as has the Corps. Uh, I mean, these are not easy problems to solve, even if you could agree on a storm to solve it for. Uh, there are so many variables to take into place. And the Corps' work on the coast was really about trying to impede the flow of water into the bay system. Uh, once you get into the bay, you've got different problems. One, there's enough water in Galveston Bay. Even if you block off all the water from the Gulf, with the right type of storm, there's what we what is called the or known as the Okeechobee effect. Well, there's a huge uh, flood that occurred with a hurricane passing over Lake Okeechobee in Florida, and basically that was just pushing water from one side of the lake to the other with the huge winds and low pressures that are generated by the storm. So. There's enough water in Galveston Bay to cause about a 15 to 18 foot surge, even with no water overtopping uh, the coastal barrier. So that's one problem. 
And so we designed a system that would uh, basically block off any of that type of flow. And we came up with the idea of putting essentially uh, a levee along the Houston ship channel. Uh, the industry has been wanting, the Port of Houston has been wanting to widen the ship channel to 900 feet. There's a proposal in currently to widen it to 700 feet. And we think that we could uh, dredge an extra 200 feet, take the virgin clay from that and build the levee system that would go to 25 feet and build it along the edge of Galveston ship or the Houston ship channel through Galveston Bay and connect um, on the north end up into what's called Houston Point area of Chambers County and uh, connect on the south end down at the Texas City levee system because Texas City is protected by a 17-foot levee at the current time. Um, but the other thing is there, there will be overtopping of 17-foot seawall in Galveston. There'll be overtopping of 17-foot levee in Texas City and a 14-foot coastal spine uh, and 17-foot gate structure with a Cat 4, Cat 5 storm. A 25-foot in, internal barrier will stop that water within the bay from coming up into either the, either the developed west side or the Houston tip channel. Uh, we also want to raise the levee around Texas City to uh, 25 feet as well. Uh, but we also plan to turn this uh, really set of islands that would be created kind of with the dredge material because we're also providing disposal for the next 50 to 100 years. Uh, basically turn that into environmental enhancement, wetlands, and then also turn it into park and recreation areas, open it up to the public, and turn it into a state park. Uh, and, and we're hopeful of doing that in association with Texas Parks and Wildlife. And I think the point here is it, it's hard for us to understand how we can spend billions of dollars on projects and only do it for a single purpose. We think it's incredibly important to have multiple purposes to these projects. So we're hopeful to have recreation, environmental enhancement, navigation improvement, along with 25 foot of flood protection. So we think that this is the right way to think about it. We honestly think that if it's built, it will be a, a world-class project for resilience, design, and thinking. And this comes, this comes straight out of the Netherlands and their multiple lines of defense thinking. Uh, the Corps' coastal spine is the first line of defense in our uh, Galveston Bay Park plan is the second line of defense, totally consistent with the way the Netherlands has evolved in their thinking about how to offer protection against, um, you know, what is to the Netherlands the single biggest threat to their future existence, and frankly, is the biggest threat to Houston's future existence. Yeah, well, you know, you 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 lay it all out there. That's. That's right. And so but by far, you know, there's the levees and you, you, you guys have thought about this totally system system wide. Uh, but the, the part that catches catches my eye are these islands that line the channel alternating from one side to the other. Uh, now, my my honest first reaction, Jim, when I saw this plan materialize, oh, maybe even a couple years ago was you have got to be kidding me. You are destroying the bay. Like you're, you're putting land where there's a natural bay. How could this possibly be? And what you're, what this piece that, that you wrote for the times, uh, I have to admit for the first time really got me to think about is the environmental benefit of not only protecting the, uh, chemicals and the, the plants inland or upland, I should say, but also 
kind of recreating a, a you know marshland and that kind of habitat that I know has been heavily uh, impacted. Not to mention, though you don't see it, ladies and gentlemen, the cut through the channel. There's probably through the through the uh, bay that is currently Peter. What is it at? 120 feet? Is that right? No, I don't think it's that deep. It's not uh, that deep. What's deep the Houston Ship Channel uh, authorized depth, Jim? Is it? Is it 60? Uh, it's about 40, 45 to 50 feet. Okay. okay, so it's really not that deep yet, but it's getting deeper. They wanted to make it deeper, and they want to make it wider. And like the natural wider. the natural depth of this body of water is what, Jim, like 50, 10, 15 feet? 10, 10, 15 feet. No, more, probably more like 8 to 10 feet. Yeah, yeah so time. we've already, even though you don't see it, ladies and gentlemen, looking at it, uh, we have, we're modifying the hydrology of these bays and... Uh, so my initial reaction is just kind of aesthetic, you know. Um, but Jim, talk talk more about the environmental benefits of you know this marsh space and how this could, you know, benefit the bay system. Well, I mean, I think that we I mean we've lost a lot of uh, marshland over the years. Uh, we've had a lot of land subsidence due to groundwater withdrawal over in Harrison, Galveston counties, and. Uh, I think of the number I remember is we've lost about 50,000 acres of uh, wetlands around the Galveston Bay system over the last, say, 50 to 75 years. So we've, we've got that as a big negative. We're also, there, there's a lot of changes coming to the Galveston Bay system. Uh, but, but I've spent my whole career fighting to protect Galveston Bay. And, you know, I've just came to the point of thinking that you know, there may be some harm, although we think that we actually can design away much of the harm. I'm, I'm always suspicious when someone says that, uh, and I think rightly so. But we think we can do that because there have been a lot of impacts to the hydrology, and there's been a, there's been a lot of dredge disposal that has occurred in these areas we're talking about building over. Uh, but I think that the idea that if we can protect this chemical infrastructure, uh, because there really is not a cleanup plan that will be, frankly, effective. Once it's impossible. You get, it's impossible. It's, if you get an unabated surge coming in here, I mean, this bay will be covered with oil and hazardous substances. And, you know, frankly, I think it will be lost as a resource for the uh, you know, next decades. You know, yeah, decades for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is the second uh, most prolific, most productive estuary in the United States. I mean, this is an estuary of national concern. It's a major seafood, uh, shrimp, uh, crab producer, oyster producer. Um, we, we have got a very important resource here. And, you know, it's really not getting the protection it needs. And, you know, industry's shy about speaking up about the risk they, they, I think they're afraid if they speak up, they'll be asked to pay for it, uh, which they probably would be. Uh, I think they're also very shy about speaking up. And if they acknowledge that there is a risk here, then would they be negligent for not doing more about it? So I, th- I think that industry yes, just kind would of be the answer triggered. to that question. <laughs> well, that'd certainly be some people's answer to that question. And, um, you know, so I think there's 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 probably the, just the circumstance keeps the industry's head down. I think we need to create an environment where we're, you know, being. I mean, I've been an environmental litigator my whole career. I have litigated against the Corps of Engineers on many occasions. But I think we've got to kind of put aside our differences and find ways to solve these problems. 
we're looking at problems that are unprecedented. This isn't as simple as there being an environmental impact from this project. Right. Hell, there's a huge environmental impact from doing nothing. I've never seen a no-action alternative that had worse consequences than we have in Galveston Bay. It's true here. Um, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. I mean, you know, the no-action alternative is the worst alternative. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that doesn't happen very often in many circumstances. But, again, coming back to the storms that we're talking about, um, you know, if all you do is solve for a Cat 2 storm, and built to about 17 feet, uh, you know, we're looking at 25 foot of surge. We're looking at, you know, I think the, the NRC estimated up and down in the Bay City plant that there's a nuclear plant on Matagorda Bay down about 90 miles down the coast. And they estimated that they needed to plan for a 30 foot plus surge right. at that location. Let's make and Yeah, keep going. That's, that's huge. And. We're nowhere. I mean, that is not on anybody's di- uh, you know uh, screen right now, and me, it needs to be. Jim, let me. You know, this must be frustrating for people who aren't in the business of working with the Corps of Engineers and federal flood protection projects to learn that when these projects are conceptualized and started, there is a design storm. They try to figure out, yeah, what level of protection are we going to try to provide. They make a decision on the risks that they're going to try to abate. A category storm, a two, 15 to 17 foot surge. That's what we're going to try to protect against. And everybody knows full well that the natural world can create a storm surge well in excess of that, which would automatically result in the failure of the project, that it would be overtopped, it would have no benefit or minimum benefit at a surge in 25 feet. And that's what you guys are calling into question here. But I want to, why the hell, I mean, this is, for the folks out there who don't, you know, it know. It seems so weird. You well, would just not, like, why yeah, would you? Why would you do that? that I would, that you I would, would say. And you I, know me, Peter, I like to go big. Right, you would say, what, if we're going to spend $20 billion in attempt to protect Houston and the Galveston Bay system from a calamity, an absolute calamity, that will occur with a surge in excess of 20 feet. No question, no doubt. We know it's going to happen. The tanks are going to burst. The chemicals are going to be in the bay. It's all going to be a mess. And it's there isn't, unlike the Valdez, which occurred in the middle of nowhere and was a devastating effect, this is in the middle of the fourth largest city in the United States. So you got to think, Jim, Tell us, why the hell are we trying to design a federal project that doesn't get the right level of protection? Why does that happen? Well, they have a concept called benefits and costs. Well, that and sounds like bullshit, doesn't it? No, it does. Well, it but seems I mean, reasonable but, to a but, certain but, degree. But, 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 that's, but that, that's the system that we have developed over the, the, you know, the second half of the 20th century. Uh, rather than to, to keep, uh, really to keep pork barrel projects from occurring uh, to the extent they perhaps had been and had been argued to have been occurring, um, we basically came up with formulas um, that the Corps of Engineers and Congress developed that were yeah. designed to kind of give the American public the biggest bang for the bucks they were spending. And it was decided that spending money to solve the less rare or the more rare events the less um the less frequent events might not be the best money we could spend okay. and so 
we are we are basically got a policy where we're spending an average amount of um, a reasonable amount of money for an average storm as opposed to a, um, a much higher amount for a very uh, low risk storm. The problem is our statistics are changing yes. and our storms, our storms are changing. And so we've got a methodology that on one hand locks us into one old statistics and two, a way of looking at risk that kind of solves for the middle, if you will. And we've got a climate that's changing. We've got storms that are getting bigger. Uh, I'm not sure they're getting more frequent, but they sure are getting bigger. And uh, we've got a uh, ocean that's heating up and fueling these storms. And we're, we are basically not developing the tools to solve the problem of uh, building infrastructure in the 21st century. Right now, we are building, looking in our rearview mirror, we're building using uh, tools from the 20th century, and we're facing 20 uh, big-time 21st century problems. Well, I'll tell you, yeah. I, I want to learn more about these 21st century techniques because we're it's one of our favorite topics here on the American Shoreline Podcast. Well, I mean, that, well, that's what we're, we're doing with the Galveston Bay Park Plan. We're solving for a larger storm. We're doing it with multiple benefits, not a single type of project benefit, but multiple project benefits. And if we have to, we're going to figure out how to fund it ourselves and get it built with local initiatives. Uh, I think you're going to have to go outside of federal financing channels or we're going to have to create new federal financing channels. Uh, this is, and I think this is true for every place around the country, building infrastructure. Mm. Uh, the storms we're looking at, rainfall-wise, we have already increased our 100-year rainfall from 13 inches in 24 hours to 17 inches in 24 hours due to NOAA Atlas 14. But that only gets us current through 2017. I think that that is too low. Our our storms that we are planning for from a surge standpoint, I mean, it's just crazy to me to be looking at a Cat 2 level uh, surge uh, when uh, I mean, you've got an Irma, Maria, a Katrina. I mean, we've been seeing these larger right. storms, and um, I, I just think it's a matter of time. So my goal is to try to come up with a project that can be built by permit, that uh, where we're not dependent on the federal process, we're, we will coordinate with the federal process. We are trying. We are. We have been judged to be essentially totally compatible. The Corps would love to have us in the Bay to go with them. I think they recognize absolutely. I mean, they only. They really didn't justify the coastal spine uh, based on benefits to the Houston Ship Channel. Mm -hmm. The storm that they are solving for didn't cause that much problem up the Ship Channel. They did not claim, I don't think, you know, for a $20 billion project, I think they only get about $50 million a year in benefits to the Houston Ship Channel, which is nothing on a project like that. Um, they don't try to justify it on the basis of protecting the industrial base. They, they justify the project on the basis of protecting Galveston County, of the, protecting right. the city of Galveston, on protecting households, but not the industry, because industry is good to about 15 feet. Where they get in trouble is when those big surges come, and that's not what the Corps is designing for. So, Jim, the thought occurred to me that part of the problem is the politics of that the Corps is trying to manage. I mean, we talked to Kelly, I guess, a little bit about this and just how sensitive, even when they release a frickin' draft. I mean, it's just very, you know, no, 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 don't worry. This is, we might put a wall along here. 
This is not this is not an official drawing. Don't, you know, lose your shit. But you know, I I do think that you know there the people in Galveston paid very you know they the the damn districts headquartered in Galveston. But I mean, clearly there is a lot. There was the the spine theory was we're all in. We're protecting this whole area, all of the residents, all of the private property, all of these stakeholders and voters are getting their protection. And I'm in your plan the the this mid bay. Uh, I guess you're. It's this is now kind of a an add-on number that we can do. But, you know, first of all, you're out. So you're out of the federal plan. Like, you're you're no longer are we're, pursuing we're, the federal route. We're not. We never have been inside the federal plan. Okay. We have always, we have always been outside of that process. Right. But I thought, I thought you were trying to, I mean, for a while, you were really trying to get the Corps to include your mid-bay option in the, in their plan, right? Right. And, the you know that the plan that the Corps is developing is very complicated. They started off with a straightforward kind of uh, environmental impact statement process design design process uh, with an EIS associated with it. What they have figured out is that they have really gotten a project that is so large that it's going to have to be broken into pieces, and so. My belief is, and what last I was briefed by the Corps, they're planning to come out with really what I call an umbrella or a comprehensive EIS that is uh, very generic, that covers the entire project. And then specific elements of that project will drop down underneath that uh, tiered environmental impact statement system. And so they may be able to build the sand dunes on Bolivar as one project or sand dunes on the west end of Galveston Island as one project. The actual gauge structure across Bolivar Roads will be a different. And now the, the Corps acknowledged that there was residual flooding inside the bay. And they had proposed uh, gates at, on Dickinson Bayou and a gate on Clear Lake. If we, uh, if we were to move forward with the Galveston Bay Park Plan, they would not need to build those two gate structures. So there is some benefit from our project. Those gate structures will be authorized separately as a as a different drop down we might be able to be evaluated as an alternative to those gate structures at yeah. that point in time and become and basically come back in perhaps as a locally preferred alternative yeah slot and in for be, that piece yeah and so that is how we we, that we we so we consider ourselves compatible in that way by doing that though we will up the level of protection but that extra protection uh, the way the core regs would read would have to be paid for by the local governments. Mm. All right. Let's and talk, so, let, Jim, how much, what is the cost estimate for the Galveston Bay park plan, which is the speed centers, uh, internal Bay system protection, levy Island system. What are you guys roughing that out to be? Well, our initial estimates are three to $6 billion. And uh, it's I, relatively I want, cheap. That's uh, all right. I mean, yeah. yeah. Relatively yeah. Cheap. When you're and talking, when now, you're at I will 20, tell you, it's an Kelly, additional ten to fifteen percent. Yeah. If Kelly, if Kelly were here on the line with us, she would challenge that number. All right. Uh, the core, the core wants us to to go through the same rigorous process they go to, and I mean, she's got a point. We we are behind them in terms of detailed design. Because frankly, we had, we don't have any money. Yeah. Uh, right now, we're trying to get funding from the Port of Houston and from Harris County to to go into this next phase, which, among other things, will be 
a detailed um, engineering slash cost accounting. Uh, yeah, come on, uh, fellas. Yeah, you I know, think. For but the, I'm just telling you. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, you know, it is a wise investment. I think taking a serious look at how to upgrade the level of storm protection for the industrial and refinery complexes along Galveston Bay is just damn sensible. And the fact that the federal decision-making process, the cost-benefit analysis, doesn't seem to create the opportunity for this project to be seriously considered, I think is will be frustrating for most Americans. And I'll just tell you, Tyler, like imagine that the storm happens. Let's say the 25-foot wall of water enters Galveston Bay. It could happen this year. The storm, right storm on the yeah, right track, 10 days, it'll, it'll be next it'll, week. It'll could happen next week. I was going to say, we're not at a hurricane no, season yet. We're, no, we got another two months to go. And if the, the, post, the post-event press conference, when the public is standing in front of the elected officials and the Corps of Engineers and say, why the hell didn't you take seriously the risk that has devastated this base system and has destroyed the livelihoods of people and, you know, the pollution and everything, the cataclysm, right? And the answer is going to be, well, that was really beyond our design envelope. See, we don't, in our cost-benefit analysis, this is going to be the answer. Right. Uh, It just really wasn't part of the consideration, uh, you know, because we have this constraint. And, you know, that kind of answer, which is going to be the answer, is unacceptable in my opinion and well you know i mean that's why in the new york times op-ed i raised the the example of the nuclear regulatory commission yeah because nrc would have was in the same position um uh, what i didn't say in the op-ed i was opposing a nuclear plant down the coast um, near victoria texas when the fukushima event occurred right and uh, i had filed a whole bunch of motions with the nrc and every one of them had been de- denied because they, they basically said, what you're saying cannot happen. My hearing actually was scheduled for two days or for the Tuesday after Fukushima occurred over the weekend. And it turned out everything that they said could not happen happened in Fukushima. And so that is why the NRC ended up reevaluating their hurricane surge damage potential, because they had taken the position that certain uh, surge levels were just unreasonable to think about because quote unquote they just couldn't happen and fukushima convinced the nrc that what they said couldn't happen actually might be might actually happen and in fact did happen in fukushima with a surge event associated with in that case uh, an offshore earthquake Um, but i think the point here is there's a lot of hubris we have thinking that we know what we're doing and thinking that we are great designers and we have the ability to design great things. But if we don't design for the right storm, we're not going to be protecting much of anything. And that's the problem with climate change. That's the problem with hurricanes. And I mean, I, I am all for Congress investigating what they need to do to change the Corps of Engineers uh, procedures. I'm not critical of the Corps in Galveston. They're working as hard as they can and as well as they can within the constraints. The problem is congressional. The problem is at the core regulatory level. It's at the sec- secretary of defense level. Yeah. And those are, those are things that 
don't change easily or quickly, particularly in this political environment where we seem to fight over everything. Well, that's an important point. And, and you know, here on ASPN, we are uh, huge fans of the Army Corps of Engineers, and we know very well uh, just how hard and ded- hard they work and how dedicated they are to trying to figure these really, really hard problems off, out. And, of course, you're right. Kelly would, would not only would she say, hey, your number's too small, but also how, where are you going to get that number? I mean, asking, getting these projects paid for, getting these projects authorized is one thing. Getting the money appropriated to actually build them, getting the state share put together to actually construct these projects is a whole nother matter. Now, uh, question for you here, Jim. How is the how are these chemical plants insured for flooding? How does well, that work? Well, most of them are self-insured to probably several hundred million dollars. And then there is probably an umbrella policy uh, with one of the major reinsurance companies uh, that would kick in if they if, if say, you know, whatever the self-insured limit is, say 300 million. Uh, if you exceeded 300 million, then the reinsurance would kick in, and that is one group that we hope to go to and talk about some of these creative financing mechanisms that we're looking at for the Galveston Bay Park plan. Is to work with the reinsurance industry, to work with social impact bonds, um, resilience bond providers. Uh, we think there's a whole really new emerging market out there, and we've got a group of economists that have kind of volunteered to help us out. Yeah, the amazing thing about our project is uh, the design we're working with came from uh, Rogers Architects, uh, Rogers Partners, who are out of New York in Houston. And Rob is a Rice graduate from architecture, and he just dropped by one day and said, look, I'll, I've been looking at your concept here. I'd like to help you develop this into a plan. And that's where the, the gorgeous plan that we They're have They're really now. nice. Yeah, well, that just won the 2020 uh, kind of regional vision for the Houston future. Right. Uh, award from the local AIA, but Rob volunteered his time to do that. Wow. I've got several economists that are volunteering time to help us try to find the creative financing uh, mechanism. Jim, can I, I just get, can I interrupt you because this pisses me off. I mean, here we are talking about a significant risk to the state of Texas, to the economy of the United States, which could very well be if this were to occur, and it's not far fetched, as you said in the article. Texas has got a quick, uh, you know, they're, we're running out of near misses. This is going, this is likely to occur. Um, the fact that you guys are scrambling around and having to get some free guy to like get put together the plan and trying to talk somebody into trying to, the Port of Houston needs to put down $20 million or whatever the fee is to do a serious analysis and design of this project. The Harris County needs to get behind that. Other partners, the Houston Endowment, come on. This is real. It is serious. It takes money. And we know that the federal government is not in a position to execute this strategy at this point, although I hope that could change. But I think the idea that you guys are having to beg, borrow, and steal to, uh, to, to, to come up with an effective way to present prevent which would one of the most significant environmental disasters faced on the Gulf Coast of the United States is something that just pisses me off. No question. I'm sorry. I will say this. I will say this. We have gotten. Uh, there's a new chairman at the Port of Houston, Rick Campo. He is very supportive of this concept. 
the port, I believe, will step up and will take a leadership position. Adrian Garcia is a relatively new commissioner at uh, Commissioner's Court in Harris County. The, he's also expressed great right. interest. The mayor has of Houston, uh, Sylvester Turner, yeah. has written a letter of support. And Marvin Odom, who is our, our kind of economic czar, the former CEO of Shell Nationwide, um, you know, Marvin's uh, very supportive of this, not only from a protection standpoint, but as an economic development concept. Yeah. So that that support is 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 coming. Great. I, I think I think it will materialize. But it, it, you have to just understand that that type of support is totally outside of the normal pathways for getting projects like this done. I do we're understand used, that. We're used to going to the core. We're used to looking to the state. Yeah. We're used to that. And the idea that we have to, as a community, go out and hustle this all ourselves yeah. is, I mean, that's new terrain. It is. And it's going to take leadership, and I think we're going to get there. Okay. I'm very optimistic. But we've had to scramble. And okay. I wouldn't lie to you. We I mean we've been working uh, without getting paid for a couple of years on this thing. Yeah, uh, because we believe in it. Well, the the Port of Houston, we got a great county judge down there. Commissioners Shell Oil. These guys are smart, big thinking people, men and women in leadership. George P. Bush at the land office. Uh, I think what I think what you guys are doing effectively, Jim, and it's absolutely necessary. Uh, frustrating, although it may be is trying to teach people about the risk and teach them about what the Corps can and cannot do and this added level of effort that is required. And, you know, we're here to help you make that case anytime you need, anytime well, we can I, help I, you do I, that. We want to help you make that it. case. You know, but one thing I, I want to just caution you about is that a lot of people that are that want to see the coastal spine get built worry that anything that we say about needing another project would end up being considered to be detrimental about getting the coastal spine done. And it's not about that. It's about coming up with a plan that in the long term will solve the problem we need to solve and then getting all of us behind it and going. And we've got pieces, but we've got to get a coherent whole. Well, Jim, I, I think you're you're well on your way and I'm I'm really happy to hear that even though the Army Corps of Engineers is moving with this coastal spine plan, it seems that they are moving forward with it, that you did not just, you know, go away, that now you're trying to approach this from a local and state kind of stakeholder funded uh, way. And you mentioned a whole bunch of ideas on how to do that. And we just talked about some of the relationships with local leaders that will be essential and making this a reality. But what is your, how, how might, I mean, I, I feel like there's a lot to be learned here for coastal cities all around America. We talked about to the port director in San Francisco, Peter. They have a similar type of project that they want to build lining the city of San Francisco. We've been following the project in New York City where there are similar uh, politics involved in where you put the levees, where the lines are drawn, and also, you know, long these huge wetland areas of Long Island that are, you know, these are these are complex areas that are under threat of sea. You know, th these are environmental resources that are under threat just from the, you know, the little a few millimeters of, of sea level rise, let alone a major storm coming in and and, you know, creating a, an environmental disaster from a chemical spill. So, Jim, what is your approach here to try to cobble together the the billions of dollars? That's still a huge number of a, a, a huge amount of money to raise to build something that could save 
save the bay certainly in the in the event of a uh, you know a dead strike uh how are you going to do this how are you going to pay for it well i mean we're we're obviously struggling with that it's it's a it's a huge hard problem um i think though one of the things that i'm learning is that a lot of times how we approach people about getting them involved in these problems sometimes we pick the wrong way to start the conversation <laughs> And we'll be and nice. If you start off telling <laughs> we promise. What the, you know, if you start off by telling someone what they need to do or if they have to do or or that they have a moral obligation or an ethical obligation, you know, sometimes that conversation doesn't go as well as you might like. What we're trying to do is understand all of this from a financial standpoint, financially to the future of the region. Uh, I mean, you know, this is a huge employer. Uh you know, if, if this place gets destroyed like we think it could be, uh, you know, the likelihood of rebuilding is not great, uh, particularly given the current status of the oil, gas and plastics industries. Um, you know, so I think there's some some real practical ways of talking about the financial implications. Um, there are liability issues with the company, but with the companies, I don't think it's smart to lead with that. No. Um, I, I just think that across the board, there are ways to approach this. Uh, as sort of a collective problem. I think the, the more we approach this as a community problem to be solved by all parties, and that's going to require everybody at the table. <laughs> it does. Um, Jim, you know, years of wisdom are being spoken there because I know as, uh, and I've known, you know, I've followed your work for decades and I know you've been a fighter and a confrontational environmental advocate on the Texas coast. And, and I see in this point in your career, I think the understanding that this has to be done cooperatively, it has to be a positive uh, initiative. You're really on the right path here. The, the Houston, the Port of Houston wants a bigger, wider channel. That's a shipping capacity issue right now. Ships are parked out in the Gulf of Mexico all the time off of Galveston because they have to wait their turn to come up this channel. It's too narrow. They have an economic interest in a bigger channel. The material that is dredged to make the channel wider is the material for the island. There is a way to protect the refinery complex. There is a win, win, win here if we all work together. And that includes our state level officials and down to the local level. So what? I want to make it real clear that I think I understand your cooperative approach and it's damn right and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry if I get frustrated with the fact that <laughs> this is the way the world works but we got to work together well and I think it's important also that the environmentalists have to be willing to work I mean right I, I am an environmentalist that's my background I'm an environmentalist litigator uh, I'm doing this because I think it's the best way to protect Galveston Bay and that's something that environmentalists have trouble with I'm you know, environmentalists uh, so often are it's very easy to be opposed to things. It's very hard to come up with something that's acceptable that solves a problem. And I think that's one of the big deficiencies of environmental thinking is that we don't emphasize problem solving enough. We, we, we try to protect what's there. We try to keep bad things from happening, but we're not good at conceptualizing positives. And I think that's the other piece of this is that the environmental community has got to get behind doing something as well. Jim, it's all about this vision quest that we have to do together that we're doing on ASPN. I mean, we're this is what we're trying to do is have this collective view. You know, hey, what you're telling me, Jim, on this conversation 
is that we got a plan for much bigger storms because the climate is changing. Now, we can all sit down together with the environmentalists, the oil guys, the plastics people, all of them. We can all sit down and say, yeah, you know what? I think that that's a reality and that we are going to need to work together. I mean, in the, in the meantime, we are going to have plastics. We are going to continue to need to burn this energy. We are going to need to move the society forward. And so much of the problem is that we have no vision of what the future will look like. And, and maybe we even have a disagreement on what the, the future will look like. But that's like the core of the problem and uniting the clans. What well, do you think? That, and, and we've got to be willing to ask the hard questions like what does our ch- changing climate have in store for us? And then be able to address those directly. I mean, only in Houston, only in the last year have we begun to honestly talk about climate change. And it's the biggest existential threat to the oil and gas industry, which is the bread and butter of the Houston community. But Bobby Tudor uh, came out at the Houston Partnership in January, February, and said we've got to be the leader in solving climate. Great news. Now, that is a fabulous position in Houston, but it's 30 30 years into the debate about it. (laughs) Jim, we got to take it when it's there. I mean, that's I, a lot I, of quarters. You yeah, know? but I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, you know. But I mean, but at, but at least we're having that conversation. Right. And but but so must the federal government. So must the state government. You know, we've got to ask ourselves what is the real risk of a Cat Five storm in 2030? Right. Because that's when this thing's going to be built. Hell, you don't want to build something that works for 1960. We want to build something that works for 2030, 2040, 2050. Only makes sense. Common sense, Jim. It's often talked about, and it actually happens in these kind of projects. The common sense answer here is to think about the bigger risk. Given the magnitude of what can happen, it makes no sense to take half measures, given the risk to the community, to the environment, and to the economy. So I'm with you. Um, Closing thoughts, Jim. No, I just think that, you know, for us, it's been a, a long path. We've made a lot of mistakes along the way. I think if I were to say one thing, I think we need to give our engineers and our planners the core, uh, you know, the fish and wildlife, uh, you know, the National Marine Fisheries, yeah. all the people involved in the coast. We've got to give ourselves the ability to make mistakes because these problems totally. require really good creative thinking, and you don't always get it right. But yeah. you're... Th- Got yourself trying with the right intent, you'll get there. But boy, we beat people up for making mistakes. And I think that is right. contrary to getting good design done. We've got to be able to say some things wrong. We've got to be able to put some things out and have the public right. tell us that, no, they don't like that. And then be able to go back to the drawing board and come up with something and not get beat up by having gone the wrong direction at one time. That happens too much. The Art of the Deal with Jim Blackburn. <laughs> I like it. It's, it's, the art of putting together the big it's, deal. It's that medium porridge. Yeah, no. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, it is Jim Blackburn. He's a professor at Rice University and co-director of the Speed Center, which is the Severe Storm Center at Rice. You've got to look it up. Uh, Jim, How if people are interested in what you're doing, if they're interested in supporting their work, uh, your work, if they want to send a letter to Sylvester Turner to tell him to fund your program, uh, how do they find out more about what you're doing? Well, you, they can email me 
And uh, my last name is Blackburn, and they only gave me eight letters at Rice for my EDU, so, or for my uh, email address. So I am Blackburn, B-L-A-C-K-B-U-R, at rice.edu. Email me or go to the Speed Center website, or actually I've got a Jim Blackburn website that you can figure out how to get in touch with me. A legend. Great. Yes. One of the great thinkers on the Texas coast. Uh, one of the people I've admired for decades uh, puts out the annual report on the state of the Texas coast. It's unbelievable. Includes a lot of great poetry, by the way. Uh, really creative problem solver. Jim, I'm so glad you're involved in trying to protect this bay and working with the Corps of Engineers and all the partners down there. You're skilled at it. And I really appreciate you taking time to Join us on the American Trolling Podcast. Oh, thank you, guys. Uh, Peter, Tyler, thank you very much for having me. Beaches and sail to the hotels. My father 